Welcome back. Today I'll make a few comments about the third chapter of Lewis' Miracles, the cardinal difficulty of naturalism. <laughs> now, if you've never read Lewis before or you've never read any philosophy before, this chapter might be a little more difficult than the previous ones. I'll try to highlight the, the piece of the chapter that you'll really want to hang on to to kind of get the, the basic idea here. One observation I'll make just because, again, I'm interested in Lewis's rhetoric, though, is, is how much I enjoy the first few lines of this chapter. Lewis writes this, quote, If naturalism is true, every finite thing or event must be, in principle, explicable in terms of the total system. I say explicable in principle because, of course, we are not going to demand that naturalists, at any given moment, should have found the detailed explanation of every phenomenon. Note again the parallel with what I said last time. The first sentence is about naturalism as a system. Uh, naturalism as a system would need to find any event explicable in terms of the total system. Uh, but then the second is about naturalists as people. And confusing these two things, again, often leads to bad rhetorical practices. Sometimes you, you see people demand their opponents be able to answer everything that's thrown at them and pretend that they have a victory when the opponents don't have a good answer. But that's not necessarily the case. There might, there might be an excellent answer to the question or the objection one is throwing at somebody, but it might be that the person of the naturalist is not well suited at a particular moment or, or stage of knowledge to give an answer like that. And that's good news because that's also true of ourselves. Often we're going to hear an objection to ourselves that we can't quite answer, but that doesn't mean that our position, the position we have, doesn't contain good answers. Uh, and I highlight that once again because I think it's useful for us to remember this and because Lewis is a good guide at reminding us of it. Again, the difference between the ism and the ist, the abstract position and the person who holds that position. Naturalism might have certain implications, but that doesn't mean that the naturalist, the person, uh, needs to have all of that figured out or that that person reduces again to, you know, being naturalism in sneakers. All right. So what's Lewis doing in this chapter? Uh, this is not an easy chapter, so I'm going to try and summarize the argument in a very general way so that you can enjoy his more specific and slow motion through it. He makes qualifications that I won't, and so it's very helpful to pay close attention to the text on this one. But here, here's the basic idea. He starts with basically this, this notion. We all need to reason. If we're having an argument, we're implicitly assuming that reason works and that it helps us arrive at what is true. It helps us reason, helps us get at reality. <laughs> Any view of reality that leads us to, to question the usefulness or the reliability of reason is an argument against that position itself. And why is that? Because that position was arrived at using reason. So simple enough. If you're arguing for a position that doesn't really lead to the reliability of reason, uh, but you're using reason to get at that position, then you're sawing off the very branch that your position is sitting on. Now, it's, it's, it's clear to Lewis and it sh that it should be clear to us, that is to say, Lewis thinks it should be clear to us that materialism is obviously inconsistent with reason. That is, that is for Lewis, if everything is just kind of atoms banging together, then clearly positions arrived at by the use of reason aren't very reliable because reason can't be very reliable. And why is that? Uh, he quotes a, a guy named Haldane as follows, quote, if if any, if, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence I have no reason to, to, to suppose my brain to be composed of atoms, end quote. Uh, 
there's, there's a lot of debate ab about this among contemporary materialists. I do think Lewis and, and Haldane, whom he's quoting, are correct. Uh, <laughs> but Lewis is here more interested, again, in naturalism than materialism. And recall from the previous chapter that naturalism isn't entirely without the possibility of some version of kind of soulishness or divinity that's sort of part of nature. Nevertheless, says Lewis, naturalism, quote, even if it is not purely materialistic, seems to me to involve the same difficulty, though in a somewhat less obvious form. It discredits our processes of reasoning, or at least reduces their credit to such a humble level that it can no longer support naturalism itself, end quote. So he's going to try to show that naturalism, the position naturalism, would lead us to distrust the reliability of our reasoning faculties. And therefore, naturalism discredits itself, since presumably you have to arrive at naturalism by means of those very same reasoning faculties. All right. So here's Lewis' tricky distinction. Uh, here's the thing you need to grasp. Lewis tries to show why naturalism undermines our reasoning faculties because, of how, because there are two different ways in which we can use the word because. <laughs> the word because can name a relationship of cause to effect, or it can name the relationship between a ground and a consequent. So, so what does that mean? When I say, you know, I tripped because I fell on a roller skate or the window broke because the brick was thrown at it and smashed into it, we're naming a relationship between cause and effect. You're naming, if you will, a sequence of events that produced one another in, a, in some sort of way. It's a rough approximation of what it means there. But what about when we, when we use the word because this way? God must exist because we couldn't make sense of the existence of the universe otherwise, or, or God must not exist because there is no answer to the problem of evil. How is the word because functioning in those sentences? The because in those sentences is not showing a, a cause to an effect in the way that a, a roller skate uh, is the cause of my tripping or a brick is the cause of the window smashing. Rather, it's renaming a reason for my thinking. When I say, you know, God must not exist because the answer to the problem, there's no answer to the problem of evil, I'm giving a reason for thinking something. That's why I'm using the word because. I think a particular thing because of certain other things that I think and what I can infer from those things that I think. So again, there's, again, a cause that names a cause to an effect, and then there's a cause that gives a reason, a basis, if you will, a ground to a consequent, or a basis for an inference, if, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so what? That's a, that's a fun distinction, cause and effect versus basis to inference or ground to consequent. Uh, what does that have to do with naturalism? Here's what Lewis would say, quote, but unfortunately, the two systems are wholly distinct. To be caused is not to be proved. Wishful thinking, prejudices, and the delusions of madness are all caused, but they are ungrounded. Indeed, to, to be caused is so different from being proved that we behave in, in, in disputations as if they were mutually exclusive. The mere existence of causes for a belief is popularly treated as having a presumption that it is groundless and that and that the most po and the most popular way of discrediting a person's opinions is to explain uh, causality. Uh, that is to say, uh, you know, this is what, what he's referring to there is when people say things like, you know, you only think that because you're a man, or you only think that because you're a minority, or something like that. So, so, so think about what Lewis is saying there. He's saying that if our beliefs simply exist as effects of a cause, 
and and in naturalism he's saying they must exist as effects to a cause that must be why we have the beliefs because they are the effects of a particular kind of cause as events within the totality of mindless things if you will then the ultimate reason that our beliefs exist that this video is being made etc is simply because it happens to occur where it does in a certain sequence of things a bunch of fairly mindless processes have operated such that I happen to be making this video, having these particular thoughts and stating these particular words right now. Even if my words happen to be correct and my arguments actually persuasive, the ultimate reason this is happening is not because my faculties of truth seeking are operating well or that yours are operating well, but rather because various causes have produced this particular effect. So, or as Lewis puts it again, quote, the implication is that if causes fully account for a belief, then since causes work inevitably, the belief would have had to arise whether it had grounds or not. We need not, it is felt, consider grounds for something which can be fully explained without them, end quote. That is, if my beliefs can be fully explained apart from any consideration of whether or not they're correct in that, again, basis to inference or ground to consequent fashion, then, then as Lewis goes on, quote, what exactly have they got to do with the, actually occur, the actual occurrence of the belief as a psychological event? Uh, if, it is an event if it is an event, it must be caused. It must, it must in fact be simply one link in a causal chain which stretches back to the beginning and forward to the end of time. How could such a trifle as lack of logical grounds prevent the belief's occurrence or how could the existence of grounds promote it? End quote. Here's the basic idea. If the thing that accounts for all our beliefs is simply a big chain of naturalistic causes and effects, and if causes and effects are quite distinct from abstract premises and conclusions, then what reason do I have to imagine that the deliverances of my mental faculties are actually reliable? If all of my thoughts are what and as they are because of impersonal events that have produced my thoughts and beliefs, then there's no reason to think that my thoughts and beliefs are actually operating in concert with principles of premising conclusion, ground and consequent. Principles of cause and effect, if they totally explain everything that I do and think on naturalism. And therefore on naturalism, we've undermined the reliability of our reasoning faculties. And therefore anything in our reasoning faculties that would get us to the conclusion of naturalism. And in that sense, naturalism is under, undermining itself for Lewis. Now, I'm just trying to give the basic idea here. This is a particularly rich chapter because as it turns out, there's a lot of objections to this argument and Lewis anticipates quite a few of them and does work through them. Lewis argues against those who think that, that natural selection or experience basically kind of tune mental behavior such that they move according to the principles of reason more and more as time goes on. Part of what Lewis is trying to get, get at here is to argue that even if this were the case, even if we, our, our mind is kind of tuned more and more to what is reasonable as time goes on by natural selection or whatnot, it's only accidentally true. Uh, it's only by accident that we're becoming more and more truthful. Such things do not more, such things, in other words, maybe we could put it this way, uh, the, 
that fine tuning of natural selection, if you will, is not moving us toward the truth because it is the truth, but only because it is useful for conferring survival advantage or stability of some kind. And in fact, if conferring survival advantage or stability of some kind uh, was conferred by believing a non-truth or tending to think in, in terms of non-truth, then actually we would be crafted in that direction. And for precisely this reason, it's questionable whether we could ever even really know that we're being primed and sort of crafted toward truth by a process like natural selection. Uh, uh, but Lewis makes a, a really clever argument here, I think. Uh, the moment inference itself is even on trial, we've taken a wrong term. Lewis writes, quote, if the value of our reasoning is in doubt, you cannot try to establish it by reasoning. If, as I said above, a proof that there are no proofs is nonsensical, so is a proof that there are proofs. Reason is our starting point. There can be no question either of attacking or defending it. <laughs> if by treating it as a mere phenomenon, you put yourself outside of it, then there is no way except by begging the question of getting back inside of it. And I think this is such a crucial insight. It's not just that any position which uses reason against reason is nonsensical, but that any position that uses reason for reason. In other words, if you're trying to, if, you're, if your position kind of negates reason and then you need to, to argue that you can still have reason, even being in the position of having to argue for reason is nonsensical. And naturalism, according to Lewis, is very much in a position that requires defending reason as to its reliability within naturalism's world picture. Uh, and for precisely that reason, it's, it's an incoherent picture of the universe. If your theory about reality calls into question the very tools we have to understand reality, then your theory is a bad theory, <laughs> undermining the very basic data of your experience, which is the data that you're a reasoner, that you have reasons for thinking things and that you're not liable to really get outside that discursive process of trying to move from premise to conclusion as, as labyrinthine and circuitous as these might sometimes be. Finally, Lewis makes one final clever move against those who think they might retreat into some kind of humble position about the matter, which claims that the use of reason is limited and that we can, uh, that we can only make our way in the world in all sorts of practical respects, but that all the big grand metaphysical stuff is beyond us. We weren't crafted by nature to see into the mysteries of the cosmos very deeply. You know, who do we think we are? But of course, such a position is in fact quite arrogant. And it is in fact a grand metaphysical claim implicitly. It essentially and ineradicably contains a massive statement about the cosmos, about how we're related to things within it and about how our reasoning works with respect to it. To, to know the extent to which you're limited implicitly draws a picture of the whole thing. Um, such a humble position, humble position, Cannot, an cannot avoid then being implicit, in a, at least an implicit, a kind of negative photocopy of a total picture of things, a grand picture of things. And, and there is, of course, a humble, there is a version of true humility that does sound something like that. We might say that the universe is big and dense and wide and that we feel we know very little of it. That's okay. <laughs> we don't know what we don't know. We're not persuaded of what we're not persuaded of. Um, but that's different than saying that we, that we can't know anything if we try or that we, things can't become clearer to us by efforts of the soul to seek and understand reality a little better. And this is precisely what Lewis is continuing then to help us try and do. 
So, so for Lewis, naturalism, at least the, the sort he's arguing against, undermines any reason we have to trust the conclusions of our minds as grasping truth. And therefore it undermines itself as a conclusion of that mind and as a truth of reason. That is to say, naturalism can't even get off the ground without sawing off and undermining the very branch that it's sitting on in order to conclude that naturalism itself is true. Once again, there, there's qualifications to be made here, so this is not the final word. So, so read the chapter carefully and try to follow the various threads of his argument because they will be very helpful to you in many contexts. But that's all for now. I look forward to seeing you next week for the fourth session. Thanks.